on today's episode, what you need to know about your running technique. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Today's episode, I appear as a guest on the Healthy Runner podcast with Dwayne Scotty, and you might know that we've collaborated several times on this podcast already. I had him on a few weeks ago to talk about three types of running, and I've also appeared on his Facebook Live uh, a while back talking about shin splints, and he helped me with or inspired me to start my own Facebook Lives. And you might have realized a couple of weeks ago when I did that Facebook Live in the patron Facebook group, um, that stemmed off the idea that I got from Dwayne. So we've been working well together and the the two podcasts share the same philosophy. And so it's always good to, to catch up with him. And he wanted to have me on his podcast or in his Facebook group live um, talking about running form, running technique, what's good technique, what's bad technique, should we change our technique, can we change our technique? And after the interview, the conversation was so value-packed and I really enjoyed it. And so I asked, can I get this audio to put it onto my podcast a couple of weeks later? And he was generous enough to provide that. So you'll hear um, Dwayne talking, controlling the, or interviewing me within his Facebook Live. And it's a, a topic that a lot of runners are very interested in and that you'll take a lot away. So without further ado, let's dive in. All right, welcome, and thank you for tuning in to the Healthy Runner podcast, and we are live within the Healthy Runner Facebook group talking what is the best running form with fellow running podcaster and my physiotherapy colleague from down under, Brody (laughs) Sharp. So this is Brody's second time actually on the show as he came on almost a year ago now and educated us all about shin splints in episode 17. So you might want to go back and check that episode out if you're having some shin splints. And we had a great conversation and I just really knew that I would have to have Brody back on the show in the future because this guy is a wealth of knowledge. I listened to his Run Smarter podcast on a weekly basis. And I've been loving his episodes and I'm so grateful to have him back on the show today. So welcome back on the show, mate. Yeah. Making me blush already. Thanks, Dwayne. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) No, that's great. And so in this episode, we are going to be having a chat about running form and how we run or what we call running gate cycle. And we're going to also going to differentiate good running form versus bad running form and give you some actionable strategies to improve your running technique. Brody is going to answer some common questions, just like what is good running form? What is bad running form? How do I know if my running technique is correct or not? Um, How should our feet hit the ground with running? Which foot strike is best for running? can you change your running form? And if so, how can I improve my running form? So these are all common questions. I know I get 
a lot from runners. And I'm super excited to hear Brody's responses to these questions. So if you guys are here on this special edition, Facebook Live on a Tuesday at 5 p.m. We're doing this. Um, if you guys are here, just type in live into the comment box. And if you're catching the replay, then just type in hashtag team replay. Let us know you caught it. We'll give you a little shout out. So let's get started with our dynamic warm up, Brody. As you know, this is our first question. Uh, we ask all our guests, tell us for those that didn't listen to episode 17, where are you from and what do you do? So I am from Melbourne, Australia, born and raised. And I, what I do, I'm a physiotherapist. I see runners online. I am a podcast host and yeah, I just love highlighting or busting a lot of running myths and highlighting a lot of misconceptions. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll get a small grab of that today because I think there's a lot of um, things, a lot of topics here where we can bust a lot of common running myths. Absolutely. Indeed. And I know you like to drop that knowledge on your podcast, um, but tell me, what do you, are you training for anything right now yourself personally with your running? I, uh, with my running, not so much. I'm actually, I actually have a, a bike ride on in about four weeks time. I'm doing a 145 K like kind of mountain run, uh, mountain ride. And, uh, the last part of it is during, uh, the great ocean road that we have here in um, Australia, it's a very iconic road, um, very scenic. And so I've been doing that a fair bit. I'm still running three times a week or so, but trying to gear up for that because it's going to be quite a challenge. Nice. Any aspirations of doing like triathlon training? I've actually already done a couple of triathlons. Um, I do like to vary up my training a lot. I love running. I love trail running as well and compete in a lot of um, trail runs throughout the year, but they haven't been on at the moment and they're slowly coming back. We're slowly starting to do events again. But um, since these cycling events have started opening up, I thought, why not jump on board? No, it makes sense. And hopefully, yeah, you guys are recovering over there. We're, we're seeming like we're coming out of this a little bit. So hopefully that's happening on your side of the, the globe as well. Hey, if enough of you guys come on live today, then we might just need to switch our normal scheduled time and do a little earlier session. Hey, if, if I can get home before 10 PM, I I'll be a happy guy. So if you guys tell me you'd rather do this earlier, I'm down for doing this earlier. Uh, Janine, thank you so much for jumping on here. So for those of you who are here on the live, if this is your first time attending, um, what we'd like to do is keep it conversational, type in any of your questions into the comment box. Brody is going to be happy to answer them as we're going along. I'm going to kind of be monitoring the chat as we go and can shoot your questions to Brody as well uh, regarding running form, but let's get into this Brody. So what is good running form? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I'll probably cover this a couple of times in this episode, but I don't think there is a perfect running form. I don't think there is a form that everyone should strive towards, but when you do ask the question, what is a good running form? I think of two things. I think of one, we want our running technique for the individual to be as efficient as possible. So we want to make sure the running economy is quite nice. We want to make sure that for the endurance athlete, they're like, they can perform at quite a high level because they're staying so economical. And so what we mean by running economy, it's how much, how efficient you're utilizing your oxygen for the form that you have. And so uh, people would generally know the, the term, the RPE, the um perceived exertion when you are running. So if you are quite economical and you've got this really nice running economy, you're almost running at the same speed, but feeling like you're putting in less effort. And most people know if you can do that for a long period of time, then you're going to outperform your previous um, time. So if you can have a running form or have a running technique that is very efficient, then that's, that would, what I would class as a good running form. Then we have the other side of the equation, which is um, a if there's some way you can correct your form to reduce your risk of injury, I would say that's quite a good running technique or quite a good running form as well. And exactly how we change our running technique to reduce our risk of injury is a very touchy subject. There's a lot of muddy waters in this around the, the evidence, the current literature that's out there, but um, we'll dive into it as much as we can. Um, do you want me to dive into a bit more detail or do we have another question coming up? 
why don't we take, you know what I think might be helpful for folks, Brody, is can you describe like the different points of our gait cycle or running form um, of how you, when you analyze in your runners, like how you would break it down? Maybe that might be a nice place to start. Yeah. So um, the first thing I would look at when I'm looking at a runner, usually from the side on is looking at their just general posture, what their chest is doing, what their trunk is doing, whether they're leaning forward, whether they're quite upright and just getting a general gist of um, where their lean kind of is. The next big thing I would look at is just measuring their cadence. If I have someone on a treadmill, if I'm looking at them or if I've got them on a running video and I'm just counting how many steps they take. So those who aren't familiar with the term cadence, it's how many steps that you take per minute. And someone could have quite a low cadence and be taking longer strides and kind of bouncing up and down at quite a large amplitude. Whereas someone who has a high cadence, they're taking more steps within that minute. So they're ticking the legs over quicker. They're taking shorter steps. And so that's something I would like to look at where their, where their cadence currently is. During the phase, there's certain phases of the gait cycle that I do like to pay particular attention to. So one is what we call your initial contact. So when you're bringing your leg through uh, the swing phase, when you very first make contact with the ground, the very first time that foot touches the ground, I want to know, okay, is it with your heel? Is it with your midfoot? Is it with your forefoot? So more of those like toe runners that you kind of hear. Um, and how far in front of the body is it? So I want to just take a snapshot of when you very first make that contact, see what that's like. Um, I'll pay a lot of attention to that particular phase. And the next phase is what we call mid stance. And that's when your foot that landed is direct, now directly under your body. And I want to see what the angles are like. I want to see um, if it's equal to both sides and pay particular attention to that. Um whether I want to change it or not is a totally different topic, but I just want to see how they're running and sort of capture those particular phases. Um, and then just a general gist of how they're running. Like, are they, are they looking quite balanced? Are they, um, are they jotting from side to side? What their step width is normally like. So if someone's running on a treadmill, um, if you, they can imagine like a white line painted straight down the middle of the treadmill belt, where do their feet land? Do they do, does the right foot land on the right side of the, the white line? Does it land on the left side of the right of the white line, which uh, what we call a crossover gait pattern, or do they land straight on the white line? So they're kind of doing this tandem sort of running. That's something I want to pay attention to as well. Um, and we can sort of paint a picture of how they're running and if they are injured or if they want to increase their running performance, we can just do some general tweaking here and there, but um, especially with running injuries, especially if they have one type of injury that keeps popping up over and over and over again, um, it can start to fit some pieces together. We might change it. We might not, but at least we know exactly how they're running. Okay. That was great. Nice breakdown of the different phases of when our foot is striking the ground, going through the mid uh, stance phase, and then going into that propulsive phase and, and really describing how you look from kind of the side view, how you would look at someone from the front or behind. Um, is there a particular running form that you would say is bad? I know you mentioned there aren't really quote unquote good running form is there something that you would consider bad or something you see that you are always going to make a recommendation to improve upon? Yeah. Another good question. You've probably um, like, there's no perfect running form. You can have a good running form. You can have an efficient running form, but not everyone should strive for one style of running because everyone's different. Everyone has different anatomy, biomechanics, um, different preferred movement paths. And so we, we want to, take their running form with a grain of salt and not fit everyone into one perfect running form. But when it comes to, I guess, things that I would always change or things that I look at and say, you need to change that straight away. You probably surprise us. Not a lot. Um, I do find there are a few things I really want to change one. If their initial contact is really far in front of their body, that's something that I would most often change. And so what I mean by that is, we have our center of mass, which is usually around where our hips are, our center of gravity. 
And when you make contact, you very first make contact with the ground, it doesn't necessarily matter whether you land with your heel or whether you land with your forefoot or your midfoot. What does matter is how far in front of the body they actually make contact. And if it is really far in front of their body, what they're doing is they're generating this really unnecessary, unwanted braking force. And we want to propel forward. We want to be as efficient as we can moving forward. And so all our forces should be tending towards that direction. But if you are contacting the ground really far in front and creating that braking force, it's just trying to put your foot on the accelerator when you're driving while you've got the handbrake on. And it's just not an efficient way. And so I would usually correct that. And it usually coincides with someone who has a very low cadence. So someone who is their cadence is like 150 or 155. They're really bouncing up, up and down quite a lot. And they're reaching really far in front of them. So usually if they're overreaching, I like to increase their cadence if it's quite low. And that will naturally just bring the foot uh, back underneath their body or closer to underneath their body. But like I said, it doesn't matter how they contact with their foot as long as it's um, underneath their body. That's why it's going to be a bit more efficient. Um, and so that's what I'd change. And I wouldn't, depending on the runner for the cues that I would use, sometimes I just get a metronome and just tell them to increase their cadence. And that overstriding usually just corrects it, corrects themselves because they have to tick the legs over quicker to increase their cadence. And if they're ticking their legs over quicker, they have, they don't have enough time to reach out in front of them. And so that can just like smooth out and almost auto-correct once we start bumping up our cadence. Oh, wow. I could not agree more, Brody. That is by far the most common thing that I see in, in runners that I would ever change. And I'm sure you're going to get into some of those things that we would or wouldn't change to treat or not to treat. Right. And that is something very common, especially in novice runners um, versus your experienced runners. You know, I see a lot of runners on a daily basis and you know, those experienced runners, you can usually see do not have those overstride patterns because their body has adapted over time. They've learned that they could be more efficient at running if they don't overstride so much and really shoot out. And I like how you described it as almost like putting the brakes on and then like you're there with the parking brake as well. And then just think about the level of forces, right? So when our foot hits the ground, guys, the ground's actually applying forces back up through your leg and that's transmitting to your shin bone, let's say, right? If you have shin splints and you always have a history of shin splints, you know, that's kind of going back to your episode, Brody, and episode 17 is, you know, could that be a causative factor to why your shins always hurt you is because you're putting that parking brake on every time you're smacking the pavement and those forces are coming back up through your bone, through the soft tissue. So, Great description. I would say that is by far the most common thing that I see in novice runners. And the most common recommendation, like you said, is just trying to improve that cadence. And I guess since you did mention that, can we, we, we haven't done an in-depth uh, talk about cadence on the podcast. Maybe, can you just tell us what cadence is Brody? If someone doesn't know what cadence. Yeah. So I can um, highlight a few misconceptions that are around this as well so when we're talking about cadence we're talking about in a given minute how many times are you hitting the ground how many steps are you taking within that given minute and you might think that it's correlated with speed but it's not actually like someone can run with a cadence of 175 and still run alongside someone who has a cadence of 150 they're still running at the same speed um, and it's kind of irrelevant of speed but what the 150 cadence person is doing is they're just taking bigger, slower steps. They're moving up and down a lot more. And the so they're taking more time to step. And they're just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Still move at the same speed, whereas the other person is ticking their legs over quicker and just taking shorter, faster steps. And that takes us into the question, of, well, what, what cadence should I be striving for? Because we do know that Strava or whatever measurements, sometimes your watch will help um, 
document what what your actual cadence is and so you have this number and how do we know if we should improve on it or not when i first graduated and it's still being passed around a lot the magic number was 180 every run should strive for 180 that's the magic golden number which is three steps per second so it is quite fast and some runners will thrive a lot with that number however we we know now that it's not a magic number there's more of a range and that range depends on the 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 runner themselves and so uh we now think just as a general rule between um 170 to 185 is a pretty good range for most runners we do know that the tall lanky runners they're more on this uh, lower side. So their optimal cadence will be a little bit lower. So it might be around that 170. The shorter runners with little quick legs, they'll probably be around 180, 185, around that range. And um, Dr. Izzy Moore is out of um, the UK and does is doing a lot of good work around what someone optimal, what's their optimal cadence. And it's just around like putting a heart rate monitor on and getting to run at the same speed with different cadences and see where their heart rate is their lowest. And we find that different runners have different optimal cadences. And the so if someone is really low, if they're at 150, 155, like high 150s, I definitely want to change. Like every runner who's running at that should improve their cadence. But from what I've found, just uh, assessing a lot of runners, most of us find, fall within that nice safe zone. And we can manipulate our cadence based on the individual. Let's just say if they're injured, we might want to change that to help with that injury. But when it comes to efficiency, when it comes to performance, most of them are fitting within a a safe zone, you could say. No, that's great. Thank you for elaborating on that. And I'm just curious for those who are here on the live, um, how many of you guys are tracking your cadence? If you are, just type in cadence into the comment box. I'm kind of curious if you are looking at that number on your watches and are you trying to change that variable? And as you guys are answering there, I'm just going to share my story because uh, one of our coaches in our Healthy Runner community, uh, Coach Lou, he's always on me on my cadence. Now I'm going to tell Lou, when you listen to this video, because I know you're working now and you're not here on the live, then you got to get off my back because Brody told me that I have longer legs than you and I'm taller. (laughs) So my cadence is going to be a little less than yours. Right. And cadence is tough, Brody. Like I've tried doing a little bit of manipulation and really monitoring it during my run. And it's really hard effort for me to change that. Honestly, I think, and I've, really gone with my runners to not have them totally focus on it. And I think that if you really try to manipulate too much, then you're just opening Pandora's box because now all of the running form things you talked about start to change and you could be creating more problems than you were trying to correct. So I'm more in the camp, uh, like you said, is if it is really low, then, you know, in those 150s, like if someone's in the 160s, I'm usually not um, talking about cadence with my runners. But if they are really overstriding, like you mentioned, and really have that heel out in front of their knee and they're landing there and then the knee is finally coming over the foot, then I'm talking to them about just trying to increase that step rate and go a little faster. So they're, they're landing with their knee over their foot as they hit the ground, as opposed to their foot out in front of their knee, but it is tough. I don't know. Have you ever tried uh, manipulating your cadence? I have. Um, when I very first started running and like I said, when I, when I graduated 180 was the magic number. And so I tried to follow that and I actually came up with like a Spotify playlist where all of my songs had 180 beats per minute, like that tempo. And I just tried to run to the tempo and I could do it. I could do it quite well. Um, and I, I do feel like I'm one that's quite in tune with my body. and I can change my running form. I've changed my running form several times since I started running, but um, I'm just one that naturally can adapt. I do get runners who I try to increase their, their cadence and they just, they just can't do it. It's just really tricky. Like their running technique is so ingrained that it's it's so foreign it's so hard for them just to adjust and actually just like lose efficiency because they're trying something completely different but like i said so someone's cadence might be 
like their preferred optimal cadence might be lower than others. And they're trying to push up to say 175 and it's too much for them. And they're, they start panting, their heart rate starts elevating. That's a le- that's less efficient. And so that's why we, we fall within this general zone. And that's why everyone's optimal cadence is slightly different. So if you find that you try to manipulate your cadence and you're finding it really, really tough and you're finding it's almost less efficient, then maybe you should back down. Indeed. And yeah, Joe adds into that, that cadence equals energy return from the natural spring-like function of our leg muscles. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I, I, I agree, Joe. And that, that was a good segue. So Brody, we talked about in the last episode, heel drop in the shoe and, you know, the lower heel drops and how it does shift weight to more of the front of the foot. But I think Joe brings up a good point when we were talking about increasing stress to the posterior structure. So those Achilles and the calf muscle, but that's what it is, is your foot is functioning like a spring and that energy is just propelling forward, but kind of increasing cadence, kind of, it all goes together and kind of hand in hand in improving the, the one running form flaw that you kind of mentioned is that overstriding. So thank you for clarifying about cadence. And if there's a runner out there that wants to know if their running technique is correct, how do they go about finding that out? Yeah, it's tricky. And it'll depend who you go see, depend what they use. It depends like what kind of knowledge they have. Um, there's a lot of ways that you can improve your running, but people get told like, oh, your, your knees are cutting in too much or you're, you're pronating too much, or, you, you know, your, your forward, your, your trunk is leaning forward too much or upright too much. And it'll just depend on the person that you see, unfortunately, but I like to, simplify a lot of things i like to think that you're that there's this competing theory of okay should we change someone's running technique to help improve efficiency or performance or will they naturally just self-optimize their running form anyway um are they familiar with their own biomechanics they they will naturally just do what is most efficient for them like this self-optimization and so i tend to fall into like people will self-optimize with a little bit of guidance, like I said, around that overstriding, around that cadence. And the other thing is like, no matter how you're running, the body will adapt to your style of running. If you do pronate, if you do cut the knees in a little bit, um, your body will be used to that if you train accordingly. If you train properly enough and you're like, I have runners who pronate so much, they have this internal rotation. It's cringeworthy for me to look at but they don't, they don't break down. They're actually doing really, really well performing at really high marathon pace. And they just don't break down because their body is used to running that certain type and they've hit their adaptation zone and trained in that adaptation zone enough. So the body's like, this is how we're running. And so I try and steer away from saying, oh, you need to make these small adjustments to help improve your running technique. But instead just saying, hey, you will adapt to this. Um, if someone is like a track athlete or a really elite athlete, then there might be some, something to be said of like training drills, like trying to do your ABC skips, all those sort of things to help improve your running technique and help improve your running form. But the research shows it's just not beneficial enough for the, the bulk of the recreational runners that are out there that you won't get enough benefit to um it's just not worth it there are plenty of other ways to be more efficient and become a better runner than trying to address these little nitty-gritty things um if we're talking about say if someone wants to reduce their risk of injury and they say brody have a look at my running technique and let me know if i need to change anything um i would have to i'd have to get a history of that runner just to say, okay, what's their history injury like? Have they had Achilles tendinopathy several times in the past couple of years? Have they had knee pain several times in the past couple of years? Um, And then I have looked at running, knowing what they are as a person and seeing if I should change anything, because there are ways we can change our running technique to offload certain structures, but we're also, we're not reducing the load. We're only just shifting the load to somewhere else. And so theoretically it might increase their risk of injury somewhere else, but if they've had shin splints, if they've had calf issues for years and years and they want to offload their calves, then there can be some ways that we can manipulate things. Um, But there's a researcher in the UK, Chris Brammer, who I had on my podcast to chat about um, running technique and 
if there are any um, issues with running technique that can link, link to injury. Um, and he's done some really nice work, some really nice studies. And he, evidence is slowly emerging that say a hip drop or like a femur internal rotation or a trunk leaning too far forward. These can be some very slight um, causes or links to injury, um, which I'm finding really fascinating. I'm paying attention to right now this is, as this is emerging. Um, so maybe if someone's really like having a large hip drop or their trunk is really far forward or they have a really stiff, like we said, stiff knee really far in front of their body, that'd be stuff that I would change to reduce their risk of injury. But you'll be surprised at the amount of people that I assess because they want to improve their running technique, which I say, look, you don't need to change anything. You just need to do X, Y, Z, something in their training. Um, and if they want to be more efficient, then there are other ways that we can do it without changing your technique. Yeah. So what you're saying is that we can train certain muscles that can now start to be activated and used when someone's running, for instance, the side hip muscles, right? So our hip abductors, I just had a runner in here, literally like, you know, I'm sure you see it as well that, you know, have one of the uh, weakest, I don't want to say, you know, they really didn't know. And they were fairly young. They really didn't have any idea of how to activate these muscles. And it's more of a brain to the muscle thing, right? They're, they're just not sure how to use these muscles. So there are certain exercises and certain, you know, movement patterns that we can teach someone to learn how to activate these muscles. And then that translates into their running. So then they are using that muscle to help with some of that running form you're talking about, because that's definitely the second most common thing I see is that hip drop that you're referring to. And I feel is a big contributing factor to knee pain and runners, whether it's runner's knee or it band pain is that hip drop. And I just literally had someone in here and it was, you know, they thought they needed to stretch the it band and, you know, get new shoes. And it was no, like if we can correct this hip drop and I'm not going to sit there and try to do gate retraining with them and, you know, say like, okay, let's put some flashlights on your hips and like, keep those lights, you know, right where they are. Um, it's going to be a matter of just tapping into that muscle, using it, and then start to think about just giving a little light stabilization or, you know, a little bit of a cue of you should feel those side hip muscles working when you are running and that your hips don't feel like they're doing this when you're running. Um, so I, I completely agree with you there. And isn't the nice thing now, Brody, with technology, like you see a lot of your runners virtually, I'm seeing some people virtually as well. And, you know, with our, our camera phones nowadays and with video, it's pretty easy, right? For someone to take a running video of themselves. Do you, how do you usually recommend your runners send you like a video? What would you have them do? Yeah. So I actually don't see runners in clinic anymore. I actually do all of my physio online. And so I instruct them how to send videos. They send one on the side, which films their whole entire body um, on a treadmill, preferably. Um, just taking just running for say 20 seconds. So just a full side on view and then a full view from behind. Um, that's usually enough that I need just to get a general gist. Um, and if we're talking about hip drop before, um, I do think there are some people that we can actually um, do some running cues to help with their hip drop. I do think they're, especially with females, females are very common to have like the hip drop and their, their knees kind of brushed together and there is a link between that particular pattern and people and females developing, say, ITB or um, uh, knee pain. So this patellofemoral pain or maybe some sort of hip issues. But um, depending on how they're running, if they have a really low cadence, I've found that increasing their cadence, they, they bounce a bit quicker and their, their elasticity of their um, rigidity of their running tends to improve and that hip drop tends to slightly improve. Um, but the other thing is, like we said, that, narrow step width or that crossover step pattern if that's also being elicited um, we might need to cue them to do a wider uh, a wider stance which can be quite unnatural for a lot of people and requires a little bit of practice um, but sometimes if i find just those corrections that actual hip drop actually can correct itself not fully but can start to at least make their way there because it's more of that quick acting kind of stuff and then just like drills like hopping and that sort of thing and triggering some really nice glute control during plyometric hopping can be quite nice. Um, 
I forgot your question. What, what were we diving into? <laughs> no, no, that's great because you, you brought up, I know we can probably go off on so many tangents today, Brody, but one thing that you just said that I think is so important for a lot of runners to take home is if they are currently having IT band pain, let's say, or that outside of the hip pain, and they're going to traditional PT and they're getting clamshells and they're doing some maybe side hip lifts, like that's all great starting points. But the key for you to get back to running without pain is to now take those lying down exercises and translate them to standing progressions and how we isolate those muscles. And then what you mentioned, the hopping. So then take that, transition that to plyometric activity and hopping drills. So now you're putting more demand on that muscle like it's being used for running. So mm. you mentioned it like quickly. I just wanted to highlight because such an important point on really bridging that gap from having you be a quote unquote injured runner or someone who has IT band pain and then being able to run without that pain. You need to actually do that full progression. And you can't just go to therapy for three times a week for four weeks or six weeks and just do a bunch of exercise lying on a table. You need to do that progression and then have someone like Brody or myself take a look at your running gait and your form and see, are there other variables that we may recommend you change? And I know we're going to get more into that, so I don't want to uh, steal some more thunder, but that was great. Great point. And I think I think my original question, Brody, was really about running technique, if they know it's correct, but you kind of answered that with taking the videos, how runners can take videos and they can send it to their provider and show them. And if you are working with a medical provider, then I would highly recommend you do that. And you say, you know, is it okay if I take a video of my running so you can see, granted, I would advocate that you see a medical provider who would look at your running to begin with. Um, but if they don't, then ask them, say, hey, can I send you a video of me running? And you can take a look at it and see, you know, is there anything that I should be, you know, addressing for my running? Because I get my pain when I run. I don't just get my pain when I'm walking around the house. It's the running that, you know, is giving me the pain. So, Let's shift gears slightly because this is kind of a little hot button topic in the running industry, especially I would say in the last decade with minimalism coming around and heel drops and shoes. And we just talked about that in the last episode and it really results in kind of the foot strike. And should we be a heel striker? Should we be a toe striker? Um, how should our feet be hitting the ground with running Brody? Uh Good. I'm glad we cover this topic because it, it is something that does need to be in the, the running global consciousness because a lot of people get pushed to like all runners should transition to a four foot strike because it's more efficient, reduces risk of injury, reduces ground reaction forces, going to make you more efficient. Um, it's not true. Unfortunately, it's not. Uh, it Most, the vast, vast majority of recreational endurance runners will contact with their heel naturally. We do have studies to show where they observe hundreds and hundreds of runners during a marathon, 10 Ks into a, a half or full marathon. And they just observe what runners do. And 88.9% of the runners were heel contactors that they, they just naturally contact with the heel. And so it's very prevalent. And then people say, yeah, but if I transition to a four foot strike, will it make me more efficient? Will I be a better runner? And we know through evidence that it doesn't, it doesn't reduce your risk of injury. It doesn't make you more efficient. In fact, there has been studies done where they've got a lot of runners to transition to a midfoot, uh, to a four foot strike and they become less efficient. And so it's really tricky, but like we highlighted before, if you are a heel, if you do contact with the heel, it's totally fine. However, where you contact with your heel, how far in front of your body that is, um, will be the issue. So if you do overreach, that will be something to correct. So we can bring that underneath your body, but you can still contact with your heel. There's no link to changing up the body. There's no link to changing your running economy. There's no link to, um, there, there is some, it, it may reduce this um, vertical peak with the ground reaction force. And we do see people over force plates when they run with the heel and they run with the forefoot that when they contact with the heel, there's this huge 
spike in ground reaction force. However, we know that like huge ground reaction forces or higher ground reaction forces doesn't link to injury anyway. It does link to it. It does seem that there is a link with stress fractures, but no other injuries. And so um, it does. It, when we do studies to see, have a look at heel contactors, have a look at forefoot contactors, and having a look at injury rates, there's no link that everyone gets injured at the same rate. And so it is something to highlight. A lot of people do find a lot of benefit with transitioning from a heel to a forefoot. Others just get stress fractures, Achilles issues, calf issues, plantar fasciitis, because we are shifting the load dramatically. If you go from a heel strike to a forefoot strike, you're putting a tremendous amount of effort or an increased load through your calf, Achilles, everything below the knee. And if you haven't transitioned gradual enough, in order for your body to adapt, then you're going to have those issues with um, with injuries below the knee. And my, me, myself, I'm actually a forefoot runner. I fall within that sort of 10 to 5% of runners who naturally forefoot strike um, without doing any sort of training. That's just what I've naturally just fallen into. But I'm an advocate for heel strikers. I, I do think that there is a lot of hype. And I do think there is a lot of... Um, coaches and health professionals and physios out there saying like everyone should transition to a four foot strike, but yeah, it just doesn't stack up when we look at the evidence and we do well-designed studies. And in fact, it probably just puts us out of our natural zone and makes us less efficient. And um, the general consensus is that it takes a long time to transition someone from a heel to a four foot strike. And the amount of time it takes and the amount of effort it takes to successfully make that transition, the benefits of transitioning aren't the, the benefit just doesn't weigh up. And so um, there's no point doing it. There's other things that we can do to be better runners. Wow. All right. Nice. So you are actually team hill strike is what, what I'm saying, even though you are a four foot striker. Correct. All right. Yes. And no, thank you for clarifying that and, and looking at some of those larger studies. And that's what I've, you know, read. And that's what I've heard as well in terms of overall injury rate. I guess my question to you is, would you ever see someone who has reoccurring um, pain, let's say knee pain, or even hip pain for that matter, and where you would recommend that they do try to uh, change their striking pattern? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's like what I highlighted before. If someone wants to change their technique to be more efficient or reduce their risk of injury, we need to apply it to the individual. We can't have this general blanket rule of everyone should run in this form because we do know that there are ways that we can change our running to uh, reduce the loads on a certain structure but it will just shift the load to somewhere else. And so theoretically will increase the risk of injury somewhere else. And so if we had someone who has knee, a history of knee pain, so patellofemoral pain, if it constantly comes back several times a year, or you've got this one bout of knee pain that just isn't going away, there are ways we can change your running. There are ways we can, inc- we know that if you increase your cadence by 10%, it will reduce the amount of force going through your knee by 15 to 20%. So that's very significant every single step. Um, We do know if you transition from a heel strike to a four foot strike, that will significantly reduce the loads on the knee and reduce the loads on the hip. But like we say, it increases the loads everywhere below the knee. Um, If someone has a real big history of calf or Achilles issues and they're a four foot striker, um, we'd obviously do our rehab and do our strength work. But another way is to go from a forefoot to a midfoot strike and just take some pressures off the, the calf and Achilles that way. But we're increasing the loads through the knee. It's just like this balance. And it's like, okay, we can shift our load, but can the rest of the body handle that spike in load when we decrease it somewhere else? And it can be said from around the hips. We know if we increase your cadence, the hips become more efficient. Um, Around the foot, we know that like higher ground reaction forces may increase our risk of stress fractures. So if you have a history of stress fractures and we look at their running and they're slapping the ground and making a really hard sound, making a really hard noise, maybe we need to change their gait to run a little bit quieter. Maybe we need to do a bit of cueing around that way. Maybe we need to increase their cadence. Um, So we can definitely change how someone runs. We can definitely do it. If someone has 
a TIB post, which is a TIB post tendinopathy, which is uh, or shin splints, which is the tendon on the inside of the ankle, and they have a really narrow or crossover step width. I like to increase their step um, width and try and improve that because that can offload that structure, but it increases load somewhere else. So um, we do need to be careful. It does require a health professional to guide someone if they do want to change their technique. Um, and it's not one size fits all. So that's why we need to tailor to the individual, especially like what type of running do they want to do? Are they doing trails? Are they doing marathons? Are they doing hills? Um, so yeah, that's why health professionals like us exist. And that's why our guidance, just following them through the right steps um, can be good because they'll follow advice from other ones who someone would say that they've transitioned to this sort of technique. It's really worked for them, but we're only just following anecdotal evidence once we start asking friends and family about the right running technique. And yeah, so it can be quite puzzling. It can be quite confusing, but it's also quite simplistic as well in the same, in the same light. I love it. I love it that you, you really mention, you know, you don't want to uh, rob Peter to pay Paul. Uh, right. So if you're looking to take away some of that stress at the knee, but now you increase it at the ankle and then you develop, like we've talked a lot about Achilles tendinopathy the last couple of weeks. And that could be a huge thing that's happening in runners. So you have to be aware. And I think really two points that I want to also make and kind of build off what you said is that we're impatient as human beings, right? We are impatient. And remember, like you guys know my motto, if you've been listening for a while, is that anyone can run and we can build up the tolerance in our bodies to run, but we are just too darn impatient to allow that to actually take effect and be able to do it in a safe way. So our, we don't overload those tissues. And if we are looking to shift, as Brody is talking about, shifting loads down to the foot and ankle. Like I mentioned in the last episode, when I've been decreasing my heel drop that I've been doing it progressively over time. I didn't go from that 10 millimeter uh, heel drop to a zero. Right. And I, I even said to you guys that I use my ultras, my zero drop shoes for my strength training, but not my running yet, because I don't think I'm there because I know I have to progressively do that. And this progression that I did is when I cut back my mileage during these winter months, right? So this was kind of my recovery zone in my phases of running these three months to start out the year is I'm building back that base and adding in tempo run. So all the things we've talked about in training in order to run, but we have to make these changes when we've scaled back our running. So don't plan to make these significant changes and continue your training plan that you're in. And if you are in a half marathon or a full marathon training plan, you're doing speed work. I would highly recommend that you don't change any of these variables that Brody's talking about, because again, that is going to be the recipe for disaster that your body is not going to be able to tolerate that transition to these changing loads because you haven't allowed the time for your body to adapt to those changing loads, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it, it goes back to simple principles. It goes back to like, um, I have these universal principles at the start of my podcast, the first 10 episodes, and it comes back to just a simple, the body will adapt. If you give it enough load to foster adaptation, if you underload it, nothing's going to happen. If you overload it, you're going to break down and get injured and just continue following that adaptation zone and don't avoid don't mix in too many variables at once. If you want to change a variable, make sure it's only one at a time and not too many things. And if you have any abrupt changes, so changes in your environment. So if you're going from running flats all the time to running hills, or if you're going from a 10 mil heel stack to a zero mil, a zero mil heel drop, that's an abrupt change. It might not seem like an abrupt change to, to the runner, but biomechanically it's a huge change. And we need to very, we need to make sure to, find where your adaptation zone is and not steer away from that with these abrupt changes and with these training errors. Excellent. And we do have a question um, for the, those uh, here on the live and guys, if you do have any questions for Brody, as you can see is very knowledgeable and he's happy to answer any of your questions So throw those in the chat before we close up here. But Joe does have a question, Brody. Uh, he wants to know your thoughts on run, walk, run to reduce injury and allow the body to recover and could possibly uh, make a runner faster over distance. 
thoughts? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. So um, we're talking about sort of training routine. I do think that runners who have a bigger mileage throughout the week, they will be better runners. If you are training for a, a marathon and you can tolerate a hundred miles a week, you're going to do better than someone who can tolerate 50 miles a week, but you're not going to do as better as someone who can tolerate 200 miles a week. It's, it, it seems to be the, um, the bigger, the bigger bulk that you do, you're going to perform better. And I do think the run, walk, run strategy is a really good way to build a big base. It's a good way to allow the body, these little, like little micro recovery sessions and just time on feet is a really big thing when it comes to endurance running and performance and, yeah, breaking it up can be a really nice way of doing that. From an injury perspective, I know I've returned from foot pain over the last couple of months and I spent a lot of time initially doing these run, walk, runs, sometimes just running for one minute and then walking for five minutes and um, building up from there. And it's a really nice way of just, like I said, building time on legs. All of a sudden you've been out for half an hour and you've only ran for say 10 minutes, but you slowly build on that and it gives your body a bit of a, a micro break to adjust and kind of just rejuvenate. And then you're feeling a bit more fresh for your next bout of running. And so it has a couple of things. It, it, it works, has a couple of magical benefits in it in several different ways. Um, <laughs> the only trick is a lot of runners who love that continuous running is very hard to convince them to start a run, walk, run program. But yeah, I've come to love it and I do see real benefits. The evidence, uh, I haven't come across any evidence to show how effective it is for prevention or return to running, but just my understanding of the body and my experiences and my experiences with all the runners I work with, I find it's really, really effective. Nice. So really most importantly, kind of as you're building that base and working the mileage up, or if someone was injured and they're coming back from an injury, I know I've used that with pretty much all my runners as we're getting back or returning to run after surgery or after an injury, it can be uh, quite effective. And Tanya says that the run walk works for her as well. Um, so hopefully that answered your question there, Joe. So Brody, let's get to kind of, we've touched upon this a little bit, but do you really think that we can change our running form? Uh, I think we can. I, I have runners that change all the time. Like I said, I've changed my running technique several times um, when I've started running. I've increased my cadence very slightly. I have changed my step width as like um, a couple of years ago. I, I, I used to be a very narrow crossover um, runner, but I've now increased my step width. Um, so runners can do it. I think some runners find it trickier than other runners. I think some can adapt quite quickly, whereas others just feel way too far and way too uncoordinated. They've just had this really inbuilt neuromuscular um, pattern, this firing pattern that's really hard to change, but it can be done. It can be done with only just really subtle adjustments and subtle cues. Um, whether we, whether, whether every runner needs to is a different story, but if you do need to, I think there are some drills and um, just taking time just to build up can be a good thing. And it's, if you do need to change a technique, it doesn't have to be straight away. Like, in a hundred percent of your running, you can try, if you have to increase your cadence per se, and you're finding it really tough, try doing a 10 minute warm up, and then try one minute of listening to a metronome and trying to run to the beat. And then uh, after a minute, just go back to your normal running. And then next time, just try two minutes. And the next time try five minutes and slowly trying to uh, get that neuromuscular system and that firing pattern to become a little bit more ingrained. It's for some people, it's like just learning a new skill, whereas others pick it up quite quickly. So yes, we can change our technique. I think we've discussed several times on this podcast already um, what, when we should change it or if we should change it. But yeah, people definitely can. All right. And if you could change one thing about the misconception of running form, what would that be, Brody? Uh, it would probably be that you probably don't need to change your running technique in a lot of cases. I do think um, if you're overstriding, if your cadence is really low, um, then probably something you need to address. However, you probably might go to like a shoe store or like a, um, a physio and they'll tell you, oh, you're doing all these things wrong. This is all the things you need to change. 
they probably don't need to. Uh, and the evidence will back me up for this. And one of the final things that I want to say is that if you are running a certain way that might contribute to overloading a certain um, body part, it's only the combination with a training error that will lead to the injury. It's not the running form itself. It's the running plus the training error. So you could be running with a really narrow step width or what's a, what's another, yeah, we'll, we'll say a crossover step width. So you're putting a lot of load through your tip post tendon and it's, it can be unnecessary, but look, the body adapts, the body will adapt to your, um, to your running form. And if you train enough within that adaptation zone, then you will, um, the body will adapt. The body will get strong to running in that form. However, if it's combined with a training error, if you've gone from running 20 miles a week to running 40 miles a week, and there's that too much too soon, that tip post tendon will be the first one to be, to develop into an injury. And so if you then go into a clinic and someone says, oh, you've got this really nasty crossover pattern that's overloading your tip post. That's why you're getting injured. Make sure it's not directly due to your technique. It is due to the technique plus the training error. And you don't necessarily need to change that crossover. All we can do is have some time off, do some strengthening, get back to your running, but make sure that you are still hitting your adaptation zone. So this could be said with every injury that we have. Um, it's the the technique plus the training error. And if you're constantly getting this tip post issue over and over and over again, then we can have that discussion. Maybe we change your running technique so that we offload the, the tendon and put it some, put the load somewhere else um, because maybe the rest of the body can handle it. And so I guess that really sums up um, why or how we should change it and where that reasoning kind of comes in, but don't be, don't be anxious. Don't be like, oh, my running form is totally off. My physio says I should make all these changes. I'm pronating. My hips aren't activating. I'm doing all these things um, and getting really fearful of your running technique because we, with the right education and using the right language, we can empower them to actually make smarter training decisions moving forward. Oh man, that was such gold, such gold. And I, I completely agree that less is more. And as I always say that we need to train smart with proper progression and there is no substitute for putting the work in. So if you're not doing your strength training in order to run, then these things will be magnified. And from what you just said, if we do that strength training, then we might not need to look for the quick fix and say, oh, I just need to become a toe striker. Yeah, I've put my hand up because I have a question or I have something to say. Um, the kind of like last final thoughts, if you want to improve your running economy, because we're talking about technique and we're talking about um, reducing risk of injury and you know all that sort of thing. If you want to improve your efficiency, yes, we get rid of that overstride. But the other things we can do is strength training. We know that strength training improves like running performance, endurance performance. We know that uh, having a really nice training program, like building up a really good base will make you more of an efficient runner. But the other thing we haven't discussed is lighter shoes have been shown to really improve your running economy. And so if you want to improve your running efficiency and become a better runner, we do need to adapt to lighter shoes because usually they offer less support, but the evidence does show that a lighter shoe will help your running economy. So there are a couple of little tips and takeaways. Oh, those are all great. Those are all great. So for those of you who are just tuning in right now, just to give you a little recap here, we got Brody Sharp from the Run Smarter podcast, and he is a physio and he shared some great content uh, with regard to running form today and really busted some great myths out there. And we talked about what good running form is. What is bad running form or is there a bad running form? We kind of talked about the most common flaws that we see in our runners um, and we also, we got into a really in-depth that we weren't planning on discussion on cadence. So if you missed that, definitely listen back, learn about what cadence is and if we should be doing anything about it. And then we also talked about how you can actually take a look at your own running form, your own running technique. You can take some videos with your phone and you can have a running physio evaluate your form and technique. And then really, we, we kind of really uh, did a deep dive on heel striking versus toe striking, which is better, which is going to prevent injury. And yeah, thank you so much, Brody, for sharing all of that. And I'm sure there are going to be many runners. If they don't know you already, they should 
be listening to your podcast, but where, where's uh, the best place to find you and to learn more yeah, about thanks. how you help runners. So they can search the Run Smarter podcast wherever they listen to their podcasts. I do recommend that if you are a new listener to go to the very first 10 episodes because I cover 10 universal principles to overcome and prevent running injuries. So that's usually the the first go-to. I am quite active on Instagram. So at Run Smarter series is my handle and I post a whole bunch of evidence exercises blogs and um, podcast episodes, those sort of things. Um, and yeah, the, the podcast does have a Facebook group. Um, so if they search the podcast title, it should pop up. Awesome. Yeah, no, you, I, I love keeping up with the evidence with you. You share a lot of great articles and, you know, thank you for all you do for our running community, because, you know, like, like myself, our goal is really to just put out this good, you know, evidence and health related information for the general public and our running community. And you do a fantastic job at that. And I'm trying to just one day, I wish to grow up and be a Brody Sharp one day. So thank you for all you do. <laughs> um, Dwayne, that, that means a lot. That's a, that's a real honor. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me on. Thanks once again for listening. To take full advantage of the knowledge you are building, you need to download the Run Smarter app. This contains all of my free access podcast episodes, written blogs, and eBooks, along with my paid video courses, all neatly housed into categories for you to easily navigate through and find content you're interested in. Also, be sure to check out the show notes for links to the podcast Facebook group and links to learn more about becoming a podcast patron who contribute five Aussie dollars per month to get Inner Circle VIP access, including an invitation into the exclusive patron Facebook group and a complete back catalogue of patron-only podcast episodes, which you can access within the app. Also on the app, you can even find a link that takes you to my online physio clinic, where I assess and treat runners from all over the world, so I can be on standby if you ever need one-on-one physiotherapy assistance. Once again, thank you for listening and becoming a Run Smarter Scholar. And remember, knowledge is power.